So as I mentioned earlier, throughout this Advent season, we've been on this adventure over these last several weeks, and we've explored um, almost kind of like pulling a thread of a sweater, uh, this, this, uh, this family tree of Jesus in Matthew. In, in John's gospel, we have this, this cosmic beginning of what God is doing in Christ. The word becomes flesh and dwells among them. But in Matthew, it's really, it's really human. It's really earthly. It's, it, it's something you'd find on, on familytree.com. Or, you know, it's, it, it shows Jesus' roots and it shows God's dealing in human history. The one thing in particular that we pulled out, um, because these stories can be, uh, can kind of just, not by any fault of their own, but can kind of hold us at arm's distance because we read these names like David and they're so untouchable. It's like they're encased in amber. They're either, they're either heroes or they're like fairy tales and we can't access them. But if you read Matthew's gospel, something really interesting that's going on is we get these female stories along the road, stories like Tamar and stories like Rahab, stories like Ruth, which we, we may stand a better chance of knowing, or of Bathsheba. And we kinda, there's almost like a record skip there because we wonder how, even if we even know those stories, we wonder how can those be included in what God has chosen to do in Jesus? How does that fit so we talked about Tamar's story, and we find a woman on adventure with God. We've talked about how she said yes to God in this adventure, even as it took her into some pretty wild territory. We talked about Rahab and, and how just how unlikely and how risky her hospitality wound up being. If, if you don't know the story of Rahab, go back and read about Rahab, that involved in Jesus' family tree in in almost an unembarrassed unembarrassed way, Matthew talks about this this prostitute in Jericho that saved Joshua's people. Or Ruth, when Sarah preached on Ruth a couple weeks ago, she highlighted how Ruth is like this improv actress, this player who seems to just knit together a network of care and trust in love and devotion around her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her husband, Boaz. And finally, uh, this past Sunday, if you were with us, you heard about Bathsheba. And we polled the room when we talked about Bathsheba, and most people don't have very high approval ratings for Bathsheba. And I'm I think we need to to reclaim Bathsheba a little bit because I don't think she earned all of those things. When we got into her story, especially her story late in life, we found Bathsheba is this woman who was just always in between things, always in between people, always in places where she probably didn't choose to ever be in living a life that she never would have chosen for herself. And we talked about how in a community like this of so many young people, so many people vulnerable and on the margins, so many people in so many different phases, young families and in school, how you can often find yourself several years into a life that you didn't imagine for yourself and you're not really sure how to be living it. And Bathsheba shows us this this assertiveness and this faithfulness to live in that sort of life. And finally tonight, on this penultimate night of Advent, we, we come to Mary, 
Mary of Nazareth. And this is a name that, that we certainly know. It's a name that we celebrate and we sing songs about. We sing this Luke 2 story, and it sounds maybe in some of our minds almost like peanuts. You know, like when Luke 2 starts to get red, we hear Charlie Brown. Like, that's just what we hear. But I want to read this other famous thing, this, this famous moment in Mary of Nazareth's life, this moment when she gets visited by an angel announcing this unprecedented thing that was to happen. Never happened before, hasn't happened since. This arrangement that God was making for a God birth to happen through Mary. She is greeted with good news of great joy, and she responds simply by amplifying God. Her response, in in a lot of ways, isn't that dissimilar from Tamar or Rahab or Ruth or Bathsheba, in that she's just trying to get involved with the God who is getting involved with her. She's trying to encounter this God that's encountered her and understand and participate in this strange, unlikely, and maybe even desperate thing that's happening through her. And a lot of this is also going to involve her remembering what God has done, what God has been to her, what God has promised his people. Maybe, maybe that's where you are uh, at this season of your faith, is where most of your faith is happening in memory, of memory of this time when it was real, Memory of this time when it was maybe easy or vivid. And so maybe, maybe you will identify with Mary in having to remember God's promises. And then Mary amplifies also by, by jumping into this renewal project that God's doing. She, she jumps into this, this idea that God is going to invest in a people and keep investing in a people no matter how unfaithful they've been to him in order to bless and renew the whole of creation, to change it all. So here's the, what's known as the Magnificat from Luke's Gospel. And it's known as that from the Latin translation of those first words, my soul magnifies the Lord, amplifies, turns up to 11. With all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to to the aid of his servant Israel. Remembering his mercy, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to Abraham's descendants forever. So Mary meets an angel, and she burst into song. This is a song. This is poetry. This, 
is no no Christmas carol, though, in that it's it's a transgressive song. It's troublingly catastrophic what this young teenage girl, and teenage girls might like to sing these sorts of songs, right? Like, I know my wife as a teenage girl probably liked to sing this sort of song. But Mary sings this song because she somehow sensed that something major was happening. Something unprecedented that two irreconcilable categories that the oil in the water of the universe, humanity and divinity, were now going to be made one and it was going to happen in her belly. Think about that, Kelsey. It's like no pressure at all, right? It was now going to be one and she was going to be a part of that and now nothing could be the same. An unwed virgin teen would now become the mother of the God who became man. So the low would be lifted, the high would be brought down, the rich and the poor would swap roles, and the the buffet line would kind of just switch where the start and the end was. Like that's what's kind of happening here because it all seems to be up for grabs now. We'll all be kind of walking backwards and playing left-handed in this sort of kingdom. Creation is being made new. But I'm, I'm troubled by that because so often creation, even today, creation doesn't feel that new. <laughs> it feels pretty old and it feels pretty familiar feels like all those fears and doubts and shortcomings, those sins and those, that selfishness, that dog, our steps, that, that is the norm and that, that keeps happening. And we get frustrated because we perpetuate it. We participate in that. Just how, as we worship Jesus on Christmas, can we, can we start to think about and understand the sort of real renewal that we're trusting is happening and that already somehow mysteriously has happened in Christ. Sometimes I think, I think art or song or poetry can help us do that in ways that just thinking through words and thinking through concepts and categories can't. So I want to focus on this piece of art tonight. I don't know how many of you guys have seen this piece that was made a few years back by one of the sisters at um, Our Lady of the Mississippi Abbey in Iowa. Are there any Iowa people in the house? Yeah, right. This, this piece shows Mary and it shows Eve on the left. Eve, the, the mother or at least the first woman of the old creation and of the fall, standing side by side and interacting in the same frame as Mary, the mother of the new creation, the mother of Christ. Do you know how, like when relationships go bad or whatever, uh, like in high school when you break up with your boyfriend, like that, that great picture of both of you, you fold you fold it over so that you still have the picture that you look really good in, but that person that you want out of the frame is gone. You can't do that with this without at least getting an arm in Mary's picture. 
because they're so kind of tangled and, and interwoven. Mary is almost invading Eve's space and her world. Notice also their setting here. I don't know how well you can see it, but you have, they're set in this garden with fruit all around them. It's this garden, it's a return to the site of Adam and of Eve's sin. As they grasped, as they usurped who God was and what God wanted for them. They said they knew better than God. It's the first time humanity lifted itself up and put God low. The garden might also anticipate that place of anguish, that place where Jesus was abandoned, that the adult Jesus, the night he'd sweat, blood, and tears as he embraced his calling to be lifted up on a cross so that humanity might also be lifted up with him, might return from their sin and their exile and their death. Maybe it also anticipates this garden city, the new Jerusalem that will come down, the final destination of us, the final destination of God where we hope towards and we lean into because that's where we're going to work and where we're going to walk with God. God will have his dwelling with us. In those words of Ruth, he will be, uh, his people will be our people and, and he'll be our God. And we, we kind of smear all that together because that's what Ruth was hoping for with Boaz and that's what we're hoping for as God comes to meet us once again. Notice also the fruit. Notice that Eve, even as she encounters Mary, she still clutches that fruit to her breast. I wonder if this is a bit of disobedience that she still embraces. Even as Mary kind of pries her, her free hand, it doesn't look like Mary's working too hard to pry her free hand, to touch her belly and to feel what the coming fruit of God's love feels like when he kicks. Mary's fruit is not clutched, it's, it's embodied. It dwells in her. She's filled with God's spirit and God's fruit is born in her. Maybe that's what's offered to us as we dwell in Christ and we have Christ by his spirit dwell in us. Notice also their head tilts and their facial expressions. This is really subtle stuff for the artist to pick up on, but Eve is downcast. I don't know that you can see it very well, but her cheeks are red. She looks embarrassed. Mary seems like she attempts to make eye contact, but I don't think it's out of condescension. I think her head is low out of compassion. The savior of the world would enter her belly and would lift Eve's eyes. This is the language of the Psalms when it says, when it says, I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? This is the language of the Psalms that asks God and calls God the lifter of my head from shame up to a new horizon. And finally, notice the serpent at the very bottom of the frame. It's a little hard to see. The serpent 
has Eve wrapped as a prisoner. It almost looks like a chain on her leg. Sin and death and disobedience also, though, has been crushed by Eve, or by Mary. And I love how gentle and nonchalant Mary is killing this snake, right? Like, this is the difference between uh, uh, a man or a woman who lives in the suburbs or the city, and they see a snake, and they freak out, and they call animal control, or they call that one neighbor who they know has a gun or, like, a shovel at least. And this is the difference between that person and, like, a country person who sees a snake and says, well, what are the markings on that snake? It might be good for my garden. And if it's a bad snake, you just kill it. You, you just kill it, and there's not a lot of fanfare. You don't have to lift it over your head or swing it around. You just kill it. And that's what it looks like Mary's doing. Because Mary bears the Prince of Peace. She's able to neutralize to conquer, to cancel the threat of this sin, not because that sin isn't deadly, but because it's on the way out. Not with stress, not with fanfare, but with grace. The sort of power that manifests itself in gentleness and confidence, security and strength. As we go tonight, I, I invite you to take this image with you and to consider it. Consider the ways that it communicates the freedom of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that we celebrate at Christmas time. It's a freedom to embrace the gift of God for the forgiveness of our sins. Whether those sins are wrapped around our leg and are just tugging us down or they're sins that we're clutching close to our breast, we have that sort of freedom. The freedom from sin that entangles and traps us, the freedom from sin that makes us less human. We celebrate in Christmas the coming of the one who shows us what it's like to be a perfect human. (laughs) And then lastly, the freedom to participate, to join in what God's doing here. Like Tamar, like Rahab, like Ruth, like Bathsheba, especially like Mary, as we welcome what Jesus is doing, (laughs) what Jesus is doing with us first in that epicenter of, of what he's doing out from us, out from each of us and out from the church into the world. As we, as we join in him, the first fruits of the new creation. You guys pray with me. Father, I thank you for these stories, and I especially thank you for Mary's story and her song. Her song that catches us somewhere in the middle. If, if we're too high, it's so threatening to us because it shows when you show up, you're going to knock us down maybe more pegs than we're even comfortable with. But Lord, it's a song that's so comforting to the low. So such good news to the poor. Such gospel to those who are weak. Lord, we thank you for this immense gift, this fruit of Mary's womb, the fruit of her 
willingness to magnify you and what you're doing and to get involved with you because you've gotten involved with her and you get involved with us. On this night, we thank you for Jesus, who we know is Emmanuel, God with us. God right in our midst. We thank you for your spirit, who you've poured out on all of us and put right beside us. We thank you for this future dwelling that you're preparing for us, where you're going to return and make this creation new, and you're going to renew each of us so that you can be with us. We thank you for all of that, and we pray all, all that in Jesus' name. Amen.